Today on episode number 311 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Robin DeRosa and Martha Burtis join me to talk about values-centered instructional planning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm joined today by Robin DeRosa and Martha Burtis, both from the CoLab, the Open Learning and Teaching Collaborative at Plymouth State University. And they're going to share with us today the ACE framework. ACE stands for Adaptability, Connection, and Equity. And ACE elevates these three characteristics that are clear, context-sensitive, values-driven, and mission-aligned, and they will share ways to help us use them to plan our assignments, our courses, and also our institutional-level responses to COVID-19. Martha and Robin, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie. Thanks for having us. I asked on Twitter if anyone had any questions that they wanted answered by you, and Rissa Sorensen Unruh asked about a board or a card game that each of you excels at. So let's start with Robin. I excel almost at all of them because I cheat. I don't like to think of it as cheating. I like to think of it as subverting, and I am generally not invited to game nights with my friends. So it's been a while. But for that reason, I'm pretty good at all of them. I was invited to be on Lillian Knave's podcast, the UDL podcast. And she actually sent, she said she wanted to send flowers, but that the coronavirus was making that complicated for her. So she sent a couple of board games for our families. I'm embarrassed to admit, I didn't even know that this type of board game exists. They're cooperative board games. And we had so much fun. And I will put the, a link in the show notes to it because I can't remember the name of it. But it was so much fun. And for our kids who are six and eight now, what a wonderful lesson to teach. And we were all battling against the ogre. So it was really good teamwork. And we and took- it makes you, makes you look much worse when you cheat at a cooperative yes. board game. Yes, yes, yes. We were all How in it together. <laughs> I don't know, but I bet I could figure it out. So Martha, any games that come um, to mind for you? So I have a weird, like my family gaming situation is a little bit strange because my husband really hates games and my daughter is super competitive. And also she usually doesn't like to play games either because they tend to get her kind of worked up. So we don't actually do a lot of games, but during this bizarre period of our lives, what we have been, we actually have been playing games. It's not a board game or a card game, but we've been playing these games. Robin knows because we've played with her. They're Jackbox games, so it's a, they're video games that you play, we use Zoom, you play them on your computer and then we Zoom them with friends at a distance and then your controller is your phone, but they're mostly like word games and I tend to excel at games like this because the more absurd, the funnier they tend to be and the more likely you are to get people to vote for your answers and I'm really good at absurd, (laughs) so... If I'm in the right frame of mind and I can channel my inner absurdist, I I tend to be really good at those. But regardless, they've just been 
so much fun for us as a family to just play, but also with friends and family who we can't be seeing right now. I have been getting so tempted by that. They have these packages of the Jack games. I forget what they're called, but there's one called You Don't Know Jack. That's a trivia game. And I used to play that in my 20s as a single person and and had a roommate at the time. And we just we got such an absolute, absolute kick out of them. And I'm actually I can't believe I'm about to share this story. This is a weird podcast day. I feel like (laughs) so let's just say I had a rough breakup breakup at the time rough, rough breakup. And let's just say that said boyfriend had the high score on You Don't Know Jack. And we sat there, you could pause the game in the middle of it if you wanted to. We sat there and tried to beat his high score so many times. We put it on pause. We'd call friends, like try to to figure it out. I'm not sure we actually ever accomplished that feat. I think we just reset the game and like just gave up and reset the life and moved on to other people. So there you are. We did play that one with my kids once. And I remember it too from my college days that it was like a computer game people had. And we played that. My husband and I played that with the kids one night and the kids were just so perplexed by it because most of the trivia was just like, but then my son kept just guessing and getting the right. I think he won actually. He doesn't know any of the answers. Unfair, unfair. It really is. (laughs) Well, we are here today not to talk about games, but I do appreciate that way to bring back Martha and Robin into the show. We're here to talk about a framework that you developed It has the acronym ACE. And one of the things I get really excited about talking to you about is you're not, neither one of you, I followed your work for so long. I know this about you. You don't create an acronym just for acronyms sake, like happens at many institutions. So I believe in your word choices here that you didn't just force your way into this acronym. And I'm really excited to hear how this project came about and a little bit about the history and then us to walk through each of these aspects of it. Let's start out with really some of the challenges that you were seeing that made you want to formulate this framework. What were some of the reasons why you just started thinking we need something to help people navigate this time? And let's start with Robin. Well, I think as soon as it became clear that there was going to be this thing people started calling a pivot, right? The pivot Mm -hmm. to remote or online instruction during COVID. I started getting emails really quickly from vendors who were trying to sell me the solution to help make that pivot frictionless. And frictionlessness was often the the word, you know, they wanted to make the transition seamless. Mm And that so did not align with my experience in faculty development or my experience as a faculty member teaching where the friction was the only place the work got done. So I started immediately and also thanks you know, to my community of scholars that, that I work with, Martha being one of them, you know, was immediately skeptical of anything that seemed like a frictionless solution to education during a global pandemic. <laughs> what, so, what would make you cause you to I have know, any suspicion Bonnie, around I know, that? It's surprising. Um, <laughs> but what I really wanted, because I knew there was lots of anxiety and I, I didn't want the fact that the friction is essential to augment the anxiety that people feel when they're trying to do this, this work, faculty trying to do this work of transforming their courses. So I wanted to create, um, we had used already in the, the CoLab, which is where Martha and I work, the Open Learning and Teaching Collaborative at Plymouth State in New Hampshire. 
We had already developed a tool called the rule of twos, which Mm -hmm. was basically a way of just getting people to focus on the big picture ideas that they thought were important to them as they were managing the transition. So I think we wanted to develop an alternative to a solutions-based approach that was also still a little bit soothing in its simplicity. So we thought a framework was a better idea than a solution. This Mm. would allow faculty to have the autonomy to make their own decisions about their own students and their own disciplines, but it would still provide them some guidance for those decisions that had to be made. So the framework aims to push back against solutionism, to give people something that's a little bit coherent in a time where there's lots of sort of confusion. And then finally, the most important thing was to keep it aligned with mission. So I think in the, in the context of emergency or disaster or fear, a lot of times we look for easy solutions that come from outside of our situations. And unfortunately, even though that can sometimes feel simpler because you can you know, purchase it and bring it in, when you do that, you lose sight of your core missions. And a lot of the online teaching pivot resources were aimed at institutions that were nothing like our small public residential-based college that really focuses on collaborative learning, engaged and applied pedagogies. So we knew that we needed to create a framework that was aligned with the way we teach and learn at Plymouth State. And Martha, what were some of the early conversations that you remember in trying to arrive at said framework? So I'm sure that there were, were there sticky notes involved, any sort of (laughs) mind maps involved in terms of like trying to formulate all the ideas you were having, the challenges, as well as the opportunities into something that made sense? What was your process like? Actually, I I think the process was all in Robin's head (laughs) for this one because, and I I mean, I think she would say that it grew out of lots of stuff that we've been doing in the collab, but this actually wasn't because we haven't been in the same space together for, I don't know, two and a half months. This didn't emerge the way a lot of our projects have, which tends to be a lot of what you're describing, sort of sitting around a table and throwing ideas around until something emerges. But as soon as she sort of began talking about it with us and to us, it was really clear how useful it was going to be. And what I love about it, and it's the reason I love this approach, is I'm a really big fan of kind of critical lenses as a way of tackling difficult situations or tackling challenges. Instead of saying, okay, here's the problem and here's I'm just going to figure out the steps to a solution, framing that problem in such a way that we're really, we're kind of forced to grapple with the complexity. And so, for example, with the ACE framework, we even had people say things like, well, it feels like there's a tension between this piece over here and this piece over here, these, you know, these practices that you've identified. And of course, there's a tension, like, that's the whole point is that by having a framework it's not that it suddenly points us in frictionless directions. It's that it exposes to us that complexity and forces us to make critical choices about what it is we're going to do and also forces us to acknowledge that friction is going to exist and we're going to have to figure out how to negotiate that both between us and our course, but between us and our students. The thing that I like about the framework is that you didn't just stop at the acronym, which ACE stands for Adaptability, Connection, and Equity. 
but you also have the additional, I was going to say nuance, but that's it's stronger than a nuance, but just that looking at this from an assignment level, from a course level, and from an institution level. And as we've been trying to navigate this at our institution, I don't think we've done a good enough job of really parsing those things out. I mean, so it's sort of like just a haphazard, and mostly probably we've been at the course level when what people really needed in some cases was the assignment level in other cases, the institution level. I mean, it's, it's, I, I really, really like the way that you kind of broke those things out. So, to, so people can picture this cause this is a podcast and you can only hear us right now is um, adaptability, connection and equity are going across the top and then across the left-hand side, assignment level, course level and institution level. Robin, talk a little bit more about the framework and then we can start going into some of the, the specific areas. Yeah, I mean, I think the two things I'll say to just follow that thread a little further, in lots of teaching and learning centers, I think there's a sense that you are generally working with faculty at the assignment and course level, and that somebody else at the administration is handling the institution level. And that gap is sometimes exposed when you find challenges in what we call shared governance I'm interested in models that try to bring those worlds together a little bit so that we can see that the decisions that we make about, for example, how we grade something or how we make a rubric or how we design um, a module in a class are linked to structural decisions that the institution is making. And if you can do those things in alignment, and again, all of these things align not just with each other, but with your mission. And I think faculty would be well served by using their institutional missions more in their course designs and insisting that those missions really inform all of the work that everybody's doing together. The other thing is like when you were asking about, you know, how many post-it notes and how many mind maps and, <laughs> you know, so some people might look at the ACE framework and say, wow, you, you took 11 minutes and just, you know, poured this thing out because that's sort of how it happened. But that's how you want it to happen. You do not want a global pandemic. This is not a time to innovate with brand new things Mm -hmm. that grow from I don't even know where. Like in the romantic period, we we talked about sort of like the the genius, right? That would just come to Wordsworth and, and his creative genius would just explode and he'd write some amazing poem. This is not divine genius that informed the ACE framework. And it's also not, you know, crazy design thinking, project planning. What this was, was looking at the stuff that we've been saying for years at Plymouth State about what's important in teaching and learning and saying that if we're going to have challenges in remote teaching, it's probably because we're going to get alienated from the things that we know are important to our students. So let's return to those things and build a framework that helps us do the remote learning in a way that's true to those things. So the reason we made this openly licensed and kind of encourage people to either change even adaptability, connection, and equity to things that resonate specifically with your mission statements or keep those and change the ACE-informed practices inside the grid is that you really want to grow these from the things that your institution knows is important to teaching and learning. And our institutions, the reason we protect them so much and care about them so much is They are special, and it's the specialness that we're trying to retain in this transition. We just don't, we don't want everybody to create online, competency-based, individualized, work-at-home 
modules that might be really great for, say, you know, adult learners in online learning kinds of settings, but might, might not work quite as well in settings where the students had expected to have more of a traditional residential college experience or be working more on project-based learning. So it didn't take long to come up with this stuff because this is the stuff that we have cared about for years. The other thing that's been coming up for me with what you said, and I, I can, it's funny, as, you, as you're talking, I'm looking at it, and I, I know things are just popping out at me. Of course, OER adoption is not new <laughs> for what you've been doing, both of you, in your work. Open tools, reduced disposability. I mean, these are, these are things that have been core to your personal missions and also wrapped into your institutions as well. Something that I found was that people wanted that perfect recipe not to be deferred from. But as soon as you would even attempt to be specific, because I mean, of course, I mean, that's a that's a good tension. People feel lost. You want to help them. But then as soon as you think you're helping them, then they're like, wait a second, academic freedom. You know, so it was this real, real good tension that we had. By, by the way, at my institution, I feel closer to my colleagues than ever. This has not been an adversarial thing at all for me. So if I sound frustrated, it, it's, it's about the frustration of me not being able to help in the ways that I wish I could have. And I hope it's coming across like that. But what I just found over and over again, what they would ask for give me that recipe was really let me experience it, but they didn't really know that that's what they really were asking for. And so, you know, in ter- instead of like sessions about Zoom, where you click when you want to share a video, I, I came up with this name, which is, I-, I call it the worst name I've ever come up with for anything <laughs> before, but people loved it. We called it Zoom and Bloom. So part of the session, we would tell you something about Zoom, but part of the session, we would have us stretch together. Or one of my colleagues, Shannon, she cooked in her kitchen and taught us about meal prep and someone else. uh, It's a religious institution, so they would do devotionals and share stories about their faith and I mean, all all kinds of different things. So all this to say, I want to know where you also saw, here's a framework this is stuff we've been telling you for a long time, but did you also have that tension of like, we also have to show people, let them not show them. We need to have them experience it. What kinds of things came up for you? So I don't know if this answers your questions. One of the things that's really important to me as kind of a practitioner in this field is how we communicate this stuff to our audiences. And in this case, to our faculty, how we take something that like, as you said, it's, it's difficult on a podcast to really explain a framework. So how do we create a place for people to go that will help them understand what this is? And so like that web page that you're looking at is just sort of the very first attempt at trying to help them with that visualization and help them see their place in it. Where we're going from here is really developing, it's my next big project, sort of a curriculum around this mm. for faculty to work with over the summer so that they can kind of our faculty are off contract, so they're not technically being paid over the summer, which we want to be really aware of, but also recognize that it's absurd to say faculty don't work over the summer. And it's absurd to assume that anybody is you know, going to just be like, oh, I'll just think about this in, in August, that people will obviously be wanting to work on this in, in different ways over the summer, but that we can't necessarily require them to do things and we can't necessarily engineer that as a program the way that we might during the academic year. So we want to create a resource that faculty can use this summer as they are dipping in and out 
thinking and rethinking, responding to whatever the latest news we're getting is, because that's going to be evolving for the next couple of months. And so my mission really is not only to think about that curriculum, but to think about the communication of that and literally the design of that as a communication tool on our webpage, which is something I love to do. So that's great. But but also challenging because, as you said, everybody, there is no recipe here, right? It's funny, my kids, every Wednesday, my daughter bakes with my mom over FaceTime and my nephew who live in Germany, he lives in Germany. And so when I came up here today, they were down there making spice cake. And I was listening to my mom give a rest. My mom has made this you know, her for de- decades. I was listening to my mom give my daughter and my nephew this recipe, and it, it was so improv. She's like, "Well, why don't we try two tablespoons of molasses and half a cup of brown sugar?" And my nephew was like, "Oh, well, we don't have any molasses." And she's like, "Okay, you put in three quarters of a cup of brown sugar." And I was just thinking about like that adaptability, like the, what it takes to become a practitioner where you're confident enough that you can say, you know what, let's just, let's, let's add cloves this time. Or let's, you know, let's see what happens if we use a little bit more brown sugar and a little less white sugar, whatever. I don't make spice cakes, so I'm not good at (laughs) improving the way my mom improvs. But it reminds me a little bit of this too, is about helping faculty to realize that they have those skills, right? They've been doing, they've been chefs of their own courses for a long time. And that in the normal course of events, they do this kind of, they adapt and they they rethink and they restructure and they reshuffle. And that what we're asking them to do, not to diminish it at all, not to say it's easy, but that we're asking them to call on those skills that they've been developing and reapply them in a new way. And to let go of this presumption, as you said, that there's a recipe that we all need to follow, that really there's just a whole lot of I'm going to push the metaphor and break it probably, but like a whole lot of ingredients that are at our disposal, that ACE framework tries to lay out what some of those are. And then what their role is, is to kind of figure out, well, which of these are ones that I like that I've used before, which are ones I've always wanted to explore and do more with, or are there things missing from this list of ingredients that I want to add and maybe share with my colleagues and, and pull, pull into this framework? I mentioned about those Zoom and Bloom sessions, and so I invited a colleague, Bill Doctorum, to come on and lead one of them. He's actually been on the show before talking about mentoring, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But he's one of those people who, he just opens his mouth, and you just, everyone stops (laughs) and turns and says, Wisdom is about to emerge, so get ready, everyone. And But he is not particularly technical. He would say that if he was here, so this is not a big secret. And so I, I was trying to help him prepare for that one and think about how to use his existing skills within a new context, but not try to, like, does he need to learn everything about Zoom? No, he doesn't. And we started out. And so I decided that for my, because the people who are not as comfortable were, were doing the Zoom part to, you know, just teach one little aspect of it for like the first five minutes, and then we pass it over to the main presenter. And in his case, I decided to, to sneakily get in there and talk about pauses. It's called the eight second rule. You ask a question and then you pause, count to eight seconds. I've actually done an entire episode on it before, but that really changes in a virtual environment to possibly needing to count to even more than eight seconds. And people really have a tough time reading the room if they've not done this before and trying to create some new norms that will be more helpful in conversation. So anyway, I ended up talking about 
pauses and what they can do and then this whole thing of eight seconds and he he used silence and he, he does this just naturally but it was then that he was so much more comfortable doing what he does already that it was like introducing oh oh i can do that here too it was just the, it was a really really great thing are there aspects of this that you can think of i'm i'm looking across in terms of i love all your word choices I could just do a whole episode or five with you just on the word choices. So not a digital divide, like, like trying to reduce it. That's the word I would have probably tried to use some sort of like reducing the digital divide. You said ameliorate, or um, I can't even say the word, ameliorate, amelioration. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, so if you look at any of the practices inside the ACE framework and you take them out of the framework, I would say probably about 80% of them, in my opinion, fall apart. Mm. They become actually, in my opinion, sort of counterproductive. They only make sense when you think of them as part of a framework. They only make sense when you have the why attached to them. So a a few examples of that, if we want to look inside the framework itself, and and I'll start, um, leave the digital divide thing for, for a second. Good because I don't. Talk. I still don't think I can say that. Word. Yeah, and we and we also really need to talk about that. We <laughs> we move that up actually when we presented this to faculty in a, in a certain kind of way that I think is really important. But one of the ones that is all over the place that everybody's talking about, which is in our framework, is high flex design, and it's under adaptability. And high flex is one of those things that I think really until about a month ago, even those of us who do a lot with online learning, it was not a phrase that we used very often, except in a very small group of folks who were interested. And and now, of course, you see it everywhere, right? High flex, which basically means a class is offered simultaneously in a face-to-face and an online version, and students can flow sort of in and out of those options. So high flex, the more we studied it as, you know, as we put this framework together is incredibly complex from a design standpoint, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're designing a fully online class, you're designing a fully face-to-face class, and then you're designing the intersection at which those things meet. And when they intersect, both parts really sort of fall apart in certain kinds of ways, right? That I think there are ways of designing around that, but it's complicated especially for people who've never even taught online before. But we thought about presenting this to our faculty. We wanted our faculty to know that HyFlex is an option. We wanted them to understand some of the design principles around HyFlex or around something like modular instructional design, right? These are approaches to instructional design that have some best practices that you can share, that have some structures that you can share. But faculty need to understand what's being achieved by designing in these ways. Yep. So when we linked these to the broader idea of adaptability and how adaptability helps you engage with students, how it affects your content, and then we took all that adaptability stuff and we said, we're not going to talk about this in a way that's isolated from connection, right? The ability to build relationships between people Sometimes actually that makes adaptability harder because it's very easy to be adaptable when you're a single person, right? But a- adapting in ways that keep a group functioning together can be very challenging. And yeah. of course, adaptability is very challenging when you add in equity. We certainly saw this when we said, isn't it fabulous? We can adapt and we can all go online. And then people are like, I don't have Wi-Fi. I yeah. don't have a device. 
So keeping things like high flex connected to the question of why and, and how adaptability is helpful during this pandemic, and then keeping adaptability tied to connection and equity creates a very different conversation with faculty. So we still were able to show them design frameworks. We were still able to talk about structures. We were still able to, for example, talk about backwards design and how, you know, if you tend to teach more emergently, you may need to shift to a more backwards design model if you're interested in high flex. But the conversation only started there. You can do that in, you know, three or four or five slides. The other slides were conversations that faculty are already good at having, right? about how you're going to create a community when people are moving in and out of modalities. And I think that's where we're going to end up with what people call quality in an experience, right? It's not going to be from very quickly transitioning our non-online institutions to some slick, you know, Phoenix model where suddenly everything has no friction and you can just go in and get your content. It's going to be by asking rich questions about the experience. And that means talking about things like modules or high flex in a larger context. Yeah. Martha, how about for you? What kinds, what kinds of ways did you see these intersections taking place? And I'm, I'm also curious too about just how you've experienced people coming into this, whether it's people at your institution or people that you're meeting because of the inside higher ed piece and your Twitter relationships, et cetera. So the piece of this that I've spent the most time thinking about, and I've talked about a little bit on Twitter with folks, not surprisingly, tends to circle around tech, because that, that tends to be sort of my background in this. And the idea of, well, what role do technologies play in how we approach this? And how do we walk the line of using the things that resonate with us as pedagogues and work for us as teachers, balance that with not wanting to overwhelm our students with too many avenues for communication and too many technology pieces that they then have to juggle. And there's been lots of discussion about this since this started. And most people, I think, tend to come down along the line of, well, what we really need to do is standardize. We need to limit the tools that our faculty use. We need to limit the expectations that our students are going to be in, in a lot of different places. We need to be realistic. And I understand that. And I'll come back to I understand that in a second, but my history with technology and in higher ed is not that. Not because I love to confuse students, but because I think that our choices about technology should be critical choices, not ones dictated by standardization or institutional contracts or relationships between institutions and vendors, which unfortunately tends to be how that standardization plays out. And so I was really thinking about this. Laura Gibbs had said something on Twitter and she had talked about, I mean, Laura's been doing this for so long, teaching online, I mean, and doing it so successfully. And yet she has her students work in lots of different places and spaces with different tools and tech. And she was talking about the fact that it works and she doesn't have students come back and say they felt completely blindsided by that. And I was reflecting upon this one night and I thought, you know, the reason for that is because of Laura, right? And that context, the context of Laura <laughs> as an instructor is what makes that work. And so our goal shouldn't be let's push everybody into the same narrow channel of how they teach and what they use to teach. It should be let's help faculty to understand their own strengths and how they're most comfortable applying those strengths 
to having students work in different spaces and places online, I thoroughly reject the notion that students are incapable of being in all these different spaces because I'm sorry, like I, I understand it's anecdotal, maybe nobody's ever done a study, but like I watch my daughter and her friends, I watch my students, I see them on their phones and on devices, easily maneuvering between different places for different purposes, using different tools for different things. The difference is that there's intrinsic value in that for them. They have come to see those tools not as a hassle, but as an extension of their relationships with people. And so for Laura, she is able to translate that into education. You know, she's able to make the use of those things seem real and seem important and vital to the work of the class, not another hoop or another hurdle that students have to jump. And unfortunately, I mean, I think this whole situation has shown a bright light on a lot of our inadequacies and a lot of the missteps that we've made for decades in higher ed. And unfortunately, one of the things we're seeing is you commodify higher ed to a to a certain degree. You talk more and more about students as consumers. You run your schools more and more as businesses. And that affects our students' relationship with their education. And so they don't come into a class expecting to have intrinsic motivation the way that they do in their other aspects of their lives. And that's something, though, that I, I truly believe at the course level we can address that faculty can address that, but they have to do it by being honest about who they are, what their strengths are, and how they enact those strengths using different technologies. Not by saying, I'm going to do this because it's what everybody else is doing, or I'm not going to do this because nobody else is doing it. But yes, I feel very strongly <laughs> that our conversation about technology in, in this framework and in this entire pivot needs to be a whole lot more nuanced than it tends to be. I'm going to be linking to two things in the show notes that will help people begin to digest this even more because we're just skimming the surface. I know there's a wonderful article from Inside Higher Ed called Values Centered Instructional Planning. And then there also is on the CoLab site, the ACE framework, and you can see the definitions for things. And then for all of these components of adaptability, connection, equity, things that you can click on. And it sounds like from Martha's, what she, what she mentioned, there'll be even more things for us to be able to access in the future. And this is sadly the time in the show when we get over to recommendations, because I would love to continue this discussion for hours and hours. But I, I want to share about a class that I took in college. It was called Sociology of Death. And you would think that you maybe, what, a, what an odd thing to have learned about in college, but it's carried with me all of these years. The biggest lesson that I took away is that there is absolutely nothing you can say when something terrible happens to someone else to make them feel better. In fact, that it's a very selfish act. By the way, they eased their way into this in the class, but it's a very selfish act to think that there was something that I could say to another person to help them feel better. Cause really your grief then is making me feel uncomfortable. So if I could just help you feel better then ultimately I don't have to feel uncomfortable anymore. So what really I took away from that class all these decades later is just that really all we can do is be fully present for other people. And in fact, I'm pretty sure Robin that this, this phrase holding space for others. I'm pretty sure that you actually might have tweeted about that. And I, or am I imagining that? Do you remember talking about holding space for people? Is that a phrase that you would use? I mean, it is a phrase I would definitely use. I feel like when I use it, I'm also getting it from other people. So yeah. um, I wouldn't take credit for it, but I, I'm sure it's it's been in all of these conversations about 
care right now. Yeah. So I, I remember on Twitter back when I first heard about Peter Kaufman, he was actually tweeting about his terminal diagnosis. And he's basically mourning. He wrote about in a, a sociological journal, really, that the story of like coming to terms with his own pending death and what that meant to him to give up teaching. And I remember just thinking, oh, I'm going to contact him and I'm going to have him. I'm just like overwhelmed. And literally the same night that I contacted him, he got back with me and he was on the show. And as many of you who've been listening for a while know, he did pass away. And I just feel such a treasure to have a tiny slice of his life, you know, captured. And I feel so much right now in, in the last, I mean, is it two and a half months or is it two and a half days? I don't know. But just the need for us to be holding space for others. So I just wanted to hold space for two people just for a couple minutes as I close up my recommendations. Um, one is Audrey Waters, who has been on the podcast all the way back on episode 15. And she has shared on a number of spaces publicly. So I feel like I can share this here that her son passed away. And just the outpouring of sorrow. Uh, I, I can recall watching her partner uh, take him on a trip. Uh, we never saw pictures of him, but take him on a trip and, and their experimentations with drones and all the beautiful videos that they captured. And then she also shared a number of photos of him growing up and um, just such a beautiful thing. So I want to hold space for Audrey Waters. And just, again, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say to make this better. It's a, a horrible, tremendous loss, and we mourn with you, Audrey. And the second one is Linda Oakleaf. And Linda Oakleaf's been with this podcast from the very beginning. She's in regular contact with me, whether it's uh, email or whether it's on our Slack channel or whether it's on Twitter. And I posted an article, I will link to it in the show notes, but I posted an article from someone who had lost their job teaching. I can't recall at, the, at this moment if it was what the circumstances were that caused them to lose it, but she mentioned that she also, the article really resonated with her too, because she has just lost her job and she works at a large institution. I, again, I'll put the information in the show notes, but 30% of their faculty were laid off. And I just, Berkeley, they're, they have a, Berkeley has a, Center for Good, or I forgot what, what it's called, but they do research on this stuff and they, they've looked at, like, you can say a number of deaths, but until you tell a story about a particular death that in this particular thing sounds cold, but it has to do with philanthropic, philanthropic donations. They're a lot um, higher if you hear the person's story, a specific individual has a greater impact on us. So something, Linda, about hearing about you lose your job, I've just been heartbroken along with you. I am so sad that you're having to go through this now. And I know you will always be a teacher. I just wish you could be a teacher right now and not have to be going through this. So I hold space for Audrey Waters and I hold space for Linda Oakleaf. And Martha, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Thank you, Bonnie. And thank you for hosting this podcast for so long and creating a community around this work that allows us to do that, to share that grief. I think that's an important part of this as well. I, so the piece that I wanted to share is just a blog post by, I don't, I don't actually know this person. It came across my Twitter feed last week. Her name is Heather Castillo or Castillo, who teaches at um, Channel Islands. And it's a piece that she wrote. She's a dance professor. It's called Creating in a Chrysalis Towards Embracing a Liminal State. Um, and I think she wrote this shortly after the news had come out that the California state system was going to be staying online in the fall. Obviously, for somebody who teaches dance, that presents 
some really particular kinds of teaching and, and creative challenges for her and for her students. But she wrote this piece that I, it really, really struck a chord with me because of how hopeful it was. And I just wanted to read one short quote from it and then invite other people to read the whole thing. So she's talking about this notion of a chrysalis as a space where transformation happens. So what do we do during chrysalis? We prepare, we train, we create art. We do not retreat. We do not give up. It is our job to reflect the human condition. And like I said, it's a really short quote from that piece, but the, I think the reason it, it just set my brain off and I've been thinking and thinking about it for the last week because I tweeted a little bit about this last night. I think reflecting the human condition is part of the job and the work of universities and colleges. I think it's a super important part of what we're supposed to be doing. And if there's one thing that makes me really sad, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that make me really sad right now. But about our schools, that makes me really sad. It's that I feel like we've lost our way and we've forgotten that we really should be leading through this. We should be showing people how we survive a situation like this by embracing the human condition. And so anyway, Heather's words just really, really resonated with me. I invite other people to read that blog post and think about how in our own work, we find a way to take this challenge and maybe use it to, to remind ourselves what's most important about the work that we do. Thank you both. Those are beautiful. And I think mine is a nice companion for these that you've laid out for us. Um, my recommendation is a novel that I came to through teaching. I taught it many, many times in a course called Wilderness Literature, and it's by Annie Dillard. Actually, it's not a novel. I guess it's sort of like a memoir or field notes. It's called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And what Dillard really does is she goes into her backyard and appreciates the universe that's contained there. And I live in the country and feel like I have a vast backyard, you know, long past the perimeters of my own stone walls. But the beauty of Dillard is that it doesn't matter how big a space you have, you know, she finds depth in the smallest things. And I think as Martha was talking about, um, and actually the whole ACE framework is really about keeping bigger pictures and larger connections in mind when you make the small decisions in your corner of the world. And that's, you know, what Dillard is all about is vast universal connections that she is able to identify right in the dirt under her feet. It's in the dirt under your feet where the work of the universe happens. And I'm, I'm trying to keep that balance and keep perspective when I'm trying to guide other people to decision making that we really need to keep broader humanity in mind right now and not, not be myopic in our vision. Martha and Robin, thank you so much for this conversation. And thanks for that. It doesn't begin here or end here just for your work, for your service, for your love. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you. Thanks to Martha and to Robin for being back with me on Teaching in Higher Ed today. Thank you for holding space for all of higher education and all the work that you do to help us be working more in solidarity with one another to serving our students better collectively. Thanks to all of you for listening and to being a part of this community. Our work is perhaps harder than ever and community is perhaps more important than ever. 
Really appreciate you and look forward to the next time we get to connect on Twitter, on email, or even by snail mail. Thanks for the gift of the collaborative games from Lillian. I really appreciated that. Our family got to play it last night and we had a great time. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.